keep feeling like I have to scoot down a little bit and see some of you faces out there. So, in 1715, the French king, Louis XIV, passed away. This man reigned for 72 years. It was the longest reign of any European monarch. He referred to himself as the Great, and he declared that he was the state. His court was incredible, and so when he passed away after all those years, you could only expect that his funeral would be likewise incredible. So his body lay in a golden coffin. They made sure that all the lights were dim, and the only really light that was available was one candle that was placed above his coffin. Thousands waited in hushed silence for the service to begin. And when it began, the bishop... Bishop Massillon began to speak. And before he did, though, he reached down, he snuffed out the candle, and said, quote, Only God is great. Bishop was bold and exactly right. Only God is great. Only God is great. You know, as a pastor, whenever I stand before you, I have several goals in my mind. For one thing, I'd like to teach the scriptures because the scriptures are just an endless wealth of truth and knowledge, knowing about God and so forth. I also want us to apply these things so that we're not only just hearing these messages, but we're living out these truths, that we're growing in our godliness and character. Amen? That we're growing as Christian spouses, parents, workers, and so forth, that we're applying these principles to our service and our evangelism. But as much as anything, I think it's important that we walk away with a deeper understanding and love and devotion to the greatness of God. An expanded view of God. Because we're constantly tempted, aren't we, to minimize our view of God because of the world, because of our flesh, because of Satan whispering things in our minds. We're often tempted to think God is smaller than the pages of Scripture declare. And so an expanded view of God is so essential, and it has a powerful effect on our lives. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, if God is greater, then our trials are less severe. If God is greater, then we're more confident to pray. If God is greater, then I'm less tempted to sin. If God is greater, then I'm more secure in my hope of heaven. If God is greater, I will tell others about him. And so our passage today is plain and simply a remarkable portrait of the greatness of God. As he himself declares this life-changing message. My prayer is that all of us will firmly believe what we just sang a few moments ago. How great is our God. So please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. As we continue our series in this remarkable book, just as, as you're turning there, a reminder that once you cross over into Isaiah 40, a major shift occurs in this book. Remember, the first half of the book of Isaiah focuses a lot on the threat of judgment and exile that Israel faced because of their disobedience to the Lord. And so when you move into Isaiah chapter 40, the focus changes from the exile that they were about to experience from Isaiah then giving them messages of hope and restoration 
and encouragement for the future. And so last week, if you remember, we covered Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11, which is kind of like a prologue for the rest of Isaiah. He foreshadows what's going to come. He gives the major themes that he's going to be talking about. And if you recall from last week, we saw God's wonderful promises of the fact that Israel's judgment was about to end. and They were going to return from exile. Remember how we spoke about this was going to be a new exodus that God was going to do with his people. They were going to, judgment was about to end. and They were going to return from exile. Remember how we spoke about this was going to be a new exodus that God was going to do with his people. They were going to travel across the wilderness. They were going to go into the promised land and God was going to display his glory once again. So, having heard all of that, imagine yourself these people hearing about being in exile and now hearing about these glorious promises, no doubt the question might have popped in their mind. So can God really do this? Will God really do this, right? So to assure them of his promise, God points to what? His greatness. He tells them about his grind through. So the first attribute we're going to see here in this passage is the infinity of God. The infinity of God. Now, when we hear the word infinity, we often think about different things that might pop in our minds. Uh, you might, of course, think about the famous movie Toy Story, right? Buzz Lightyear. What's his saying? To infinity and beyond, right? Or you might be having a conversation with somebody, and you use the word infinity to sort of end the conversation. You say, well, I scored a 1,000 points, and... Somebody else might say, well, I scored a million points. You say, well, I scored infinity. And that just sort of ends it, right? So there's a lot of different ways that we think about infinity. But for a moment, let's put aside those ways, put aside Buzz Lightyear and so forth, and think about what it means when it applies to God. And so when we talk about God is infinite, what we mean by that is he has no limits. He has no limits. Theologians say that God has no limits when it comes to his, his, uh, himself, time, and space. And so when it comes to himself, God is infinite. He's infinitely loving, just, and so forth, right? There's no limit to these things. He's also infinite in relationship to space. He, he fills all of space, and he transcends all of the creation, right? Amazing. He's also infinite in relationship to time. He's, he has no beginning. He has no end. He's just God, and he's eternal. So he's infinite. So now... We see all that, that God is infinite. In verse 12, Isaiah speaks about the fact that God is infinite in his power. Let's read together verse 12 where it says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? So God points to different things in creation to demonstrate that he has no limits to his power. And you notice there, he started off by saying the fact that God could gather all of the waters of the world and put them in his hand. Just like, you know, maybe you go over to a sink or something and, and you put some water into your hand, the cup of your hand. God is saying, look, I could gather up all the trillions of gallons of water that is on this planet. If I wanted to, I could put it in my hand. Who else can do that? God is great, isn't he? Or how about this? 
God can look at the universe with the span of his hand. That word there, the Hebrew word for span, was used to talk about how people would measure. They would measure between the end of their thumb and their pinky, right? That was a span. So God's saying, look, I can look at the entire universe like this and see the whole thing. Now, we know that the universe is 100 billion light years in diameter. But God's like, no worries at all. I could see the whole thing from beginning to end in the span of my hand. That's God, amen? Or he talks about how uh, the fact that he could put all of the mountains and, and hills on a scale and weigh them. And I was curious, I was like, have they ever estimated how big Mount Everest is? They estimated at 357 trillion pounds. So God's like, I could take Mount Everest here, I could take Mount Washington, I could put them all on a scale and weigh them. Just like, you know, we would take an apple at the grocery store and see how much it weighs. Who else can do that? Only God can. He is infinite in his power. He's also infinite in his knowledge. In verses 13 to 14 it says, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. So God's saying, look, has anybody ever showed me or told me what to do? Did I ever learn from anybody? Did, my, did I receive counsel from anybody? And of course the answer is no one, right? No one has ever told, we might say, God, you should do this, but we're kind of, we don't know what we're talking about. Only God knows all of these things. And so the only thing that we really do know is that God knows so much more than you and I could possibly know. I was thinking about how the fact that God knows every atom in the entire universe and where it's located. He knows when the universe began and how it began. He knows every fact of history. He knows the future as well as he knows the past. And his knowledge of things isn't just as what has happened or will happen he knows what might have happened. You ever think about that sometime? With What if I had done this instead of that? How would things have unfolded in my life or other people's lives? God knows all that. He knows all the things in major world events that have happened. Like if, what, if, what if we had not won World War II and things would have unfolded differently? God knows all of those things. He knows the great mysteries that we may never know. When people look at Stonehenge in, in England, they try to figure out, how on earth did that ever come to pass, that great mystery? We may never figure that out. Or the great mystery of when you're standing at the elevator and you keep pushing the button, does it actually make it go faster or slower or anything like that? You know you do it. God knows all of these things, doesn't he? So he's infinite in his knowledge. He's also infinite in his being. In verse 15 to 17 it says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its, are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So to, to start off there, he says that the nations are like a drop from a bucket or dust on a scale. 
Now, if you're carrying a bucket of water across the yard or whatever, and you notice that a, a drop of water spills out of the bucket, do you go and re- try to retrieve that drop of water? Now that you got maybe some concerns in, that you need to deal with there, right? Most people aren't too worried about a drop of water. Because why? It's insignificant. And so God is saying, compared to him, that, what does it say there? The nations are like a drop from a bucket. Not just a person, not just a town, but all the entire nations are a drop from a bucket. He also says there, if you were to gather up all of the, if you were to make an offering, if you gathered up all the trees from Lebanon, they were famous for their trees. It, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be worthy. Or if you were to gather all the beasts there and have a sacrifice like they did in the Old Testament, it wouldn't be worthy, actually, of God. And then he says that all the nations and all the things that are contained in them, people, animals, and so forth, how do they, how, what are they like before God? Nothing before God. Now, church, let me clarify. He's not saying that, okay, you don't exist, or he's not saying that you have no significance to God. We know the Bible says we actually are very significant to God. But the point is, is that compared to God, our worth is as if we're nothing. Because he is so infinitely great. And that's something that we really need to just instill in our minds. That between God and between us, there's just this infinite chasm between the creator and the creation. If you took the mightiest angel in the universe, the most glorious, powerful angel, and you put that angel next to a single-celled organism, that angel has more in common with the organism than he does with God. Because God is that vast and that infinite. God is the creator. We are the creation. He is God alone. Amen? So now we move from the infinity of God to the second attribute in this passage, the sovereignty of God. Let's skip down to verse 21, where Isaiah 21 says and following, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and in its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing who makes the and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. So God, he controls all of nature. It says there he spreads out the heavens and he rules over them. God controls nature. He also controls the nations. They're not only like nothing compared to him, but he controls them. He rules and he reigns over them. He says that rulers are compared. He compares them to a plant. God just blows on them, and they're done. And it's not just the rulers, but we all get a big dose of humility, don't we? All of the inhabitants are like what? Grasshoppers. That's pretty humbling, right? We are grasshoppers. We are utterly powerless to stop the plans and purposes of God. Of God. 
We saw that in Isaiah, didn't we? Here comes the king of Assyria with this mighty army, and God absolutely stops him in his tracks. God is sovereign. And so in our day, church, God is sovereign over our nation. He's sovereign no matter what happens today, what happens tomorrow, what happens in the election, or whatever occurs, God is in complete control over this country. Do you believe that? Do you live that way? We should. Amen? God continues about his sovereignty by discussing the stars in verse 25 to 26. He says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings them out, who, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, and by the greatness of his might, and because he's go, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So God says, Look, who created the stars? And of course, he did. But of course, pagan cultures often would worship the stars as gods, but God says, No, I made those. I made them. And I control them. In fact, I count them all. And I know all of them by name. Isn't that amazing? God knows all of the stars by name. Now in ancient Israel, they would look up into the sky, and I guess on a good night, they could see about 5,000 stars with the naked eye. That's pretty, pretty incredible. So we know now that there are a lot more than 5,000 stars. Any idea how many stars there are in the world? Million? Billion? Not even close. Not even close. I asked Siri, you know, from your Apple products. She is not all-knowing, but she was helpful here. She cited research that says that the number of stars is about one septillion. That is a ten with 24 zeros after it. And they really don't know. The number just kind of keeps going up. But to give you a perspective, that means that there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on planet Earth. And I'm not just saying Hammond Acid Beach. I'm talking about every beach, every desert. There are more stars in this universe than there are grains of sand. God knows each star. He controls each star. He is sovereign. Amen? So how do we respond to this, just this mind-blowing portrait of the greatness of God? Because God doesn't, God doesn't want us just to hear these things and learn. He wants it to transform and renew our lives. Well, let's see what he says. Let's keep reading. It says there, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So in essence, people in Isaiah's day, as well as ours, wonder, where is God? They say he's hidden. Or he doesn't care about my situation. Perhaps he's so concerned about the stars and the universe and all these other things that he's lost sight of me. You ever think those things? I think we all wonder it sometimes, right? 
Scripture urges us to think otherwise. So church, please, please hear this point. The greatness of God means that He knows you. The greatness of God means that He knows you. The fact that He knows all of these stars and He knows them by name guarantees that He knows you. You are made in the image of God. The stars, as wonderful as they are, are not made in the image of God. And so if God knows all of these stars, how much more does He know you? And as it says there, He doesn't faint or grow weary. It's not like He says, Oh, I know them, but I can't do anything about it. Or I'm, I need a nap because I'm so tired and I can't do something in this person's life because I'm really exhausted. That's not God at all, is it? And his understanding is unsearchable. In other words, please listen to this, he knows what he is doing. He knows what he is doing. A little later it says in Isaiah 45.9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? God doesn't want us to have that mindset, does he? The knowledge and greatness of God means that he knows us. Let us take comfort and assurance in that. But also, God gives power to his people. It says in verse 29 and following, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. God will strengthen you in the midst of your trials. On your own, you can't do it. But God will give you the strength to love and to serve Him. Recently I was reading in 1 Samuel chapter 30 about David. When we think of David, we think about his later life when he was the king, the mighty king, and he unified the tribes of Israel and expanded their borders through all of his military conquests. But we often forget about the days before he became king, when he was on the run, when King Saul was pursuing him unjustly and was trying to kill him. And some think that this might have gone for many years. Eventually, David gathered around himself about 600 men and their families and their livestock and so on. One time, as it says there in 1 Samuel 30, while they were out, the men were out, the Amalekites raided the city where they were staying. They burned the city. They took away all of their families and their livestock. It says in verse 6, David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I can only imagine how David felt, right? I mean, he loses his family. They're kidnapped. He may never see them again. He's got this incredible weight, knowing that all of his men and their families have been taken away from him. They may never see them again. 
they're talking about killing him. Not to mention the fact that he had been on the run from Saul for a long time, living in caves and so forth. You can imagine how exhausted David was. Amen? So what did David do? It says he strengthened himself in the Lord. He looked to the Lord for his strength. Yes, David and his men, they recovered all of those uh, missing family members and their livestock and so forth. Church, God provides an endless reserve of strength to his people. You say, how so? Well, here's some ways that God strengthens us when we wait upon him. We lay our anxieties at his feet, the things that weigh us down day after day. We lay those down at the feet of the Lord. We confess our sins that ensnare us in guilt and shame, and we walk away freed from those because of the grace of God. We ask him for wisdom when we're in the midst of difficult situations, and he will guide us through them. The Bible says he gives generously to those who ask him when they're in the midst of trials. We're reminded of his love and mercy. And I'm sure right now you might think of other ways as well that God strengthens his people. And I don't have an exact formula for it all, but I simply know that when we wait on the Lord, when we seek him, he gives us strength. I don't know how, when I am exhausted and I get a good night's sleep, that the next day I'm refreshed physically. I don't know all the ins and outs of how that works. But I know that it works. And I don't know how God does it when he comes to us, when we are spiritually exhausted and he renews our strength. But he does. But we must wait for him. Amen? We have to humbly receive God's strength. This isn't willpower. This isn't just being strong and tough by nature and constitution. This is God doing that work in you. Even Jesus, God in human flesh, had to go and pray. It says in Mark 135, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Is there why would we expect to be any different, right? that somehow we're going to make it through the trials and tribulations of life in our own strength. Not going to happen. We must take time to wait on the Lord and to be strengthened by Him. I was thinking about it this morning. What a testimony it would be for the church to wait on the Lord and to rise up and declare to the world This is what you need to press through the trials that you're going through. This is how you do it. And you can walk through these trials and not be bitter and not be cynical like so many people are in the world that you can be strengthened by the Lord. He will do it. Would you like for me to share how He can do it in your life? So church, I hope your view of God has been expanded about the greatness of God. It's absolutely essential to see God this way. It changes your daily life. And if you've never become a Christian, let me speak to you for a moment. God made you to know Him. 
does know you. Let that encourage you. He does know you. But he wants to have a relationship with you. You say, well, how does that happen? Well, God is infinite in his power, as we saw. But he's also infinite in his justice. What that means is that he can't allow our sin and our rebellion to go unpunished. I think we know this intuitively, don't we? That God is a just God and he can't just sweep stuff under the rug. So we know something has to be done with that. We suppress it. We're hesitant to look for God the same way a thief is hesitant to go find a police officer, right? But let me encourage you today to humble yourself. And then you will find God. Come clean before him. Acknowledge your need for forgiveness and salvation. And to understand that the way to forgiveness is through Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity who was fully God, but he became a man and he lived that sinless, perfect life that none of us live so that when he died on the cross, he died for not his sin, but the sins of all those who will believe in him. And then he rose three days later to show that he was victorious over death and sin and Satan. Validating his promises, validating his claims about himself showing that he is worthy of entrusting our lives to him. Do that today and understand how great this God is. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, how great you are and your greatness is unsearchable. Lord, this morning we just want to Declare that. We also want to repent of often our small view of God. Not to be bogged down in the doubts and frustrations that are plaguing us perhaps even now, as we read about in this passage. Lord, may you comfort us by these words, that just as you know all of the stars by name, you know each one of us by name. You know what's going on in our lives. Lord, we pray today that we would seek you for our strength, that we would wait upon you and believe these wonderful promises, that as we do, we can be refreshed, we can be restored and renewed to serve you. But God, help us to take that seriously, to wait upon you. Not try to squeeze you in with just a a one-minute devotional and think that's really waiting on you Lord we need to sit and soak up your presence lay our burdens before you ask you for wisdom believe in the promises of God and how much you love us Ephesians 6 10 says be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might so Lord we pray you would strengthen your people through this wonderful passage that declares the greatness of God here today who's never Come to faith in Christ. Lord, may they be so enthralled by this view of God. May they also be humbled by their sin. Lay it before your throne. and Believe in Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. God, we thank you so much. Thank you for the amazing God you are. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.
All God's people said.